Check, check, check. All right, we are in. I'll re- I think I'm gonna read from the ESV today. Just mix things up a little bit. Come again? Oh, Providence. Matthew 21. We're starting with verse 1, and we're going to go down to verse 17. The triumphal entry is the title for this passage. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that is, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Powerful story. Powerful story. It's not Christmas, but you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not. I'm telling you. Thank you. Why? Because what? Who's coming to town? Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's. Thank you, Hunter. He's going to find out who's been naughty or. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, here's the, here's the kind of creepy part. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're... Yeah. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for... You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pound. I'm telling you why. Who's coming to town? Santa Claus is coming to town. The VIP is coming to town. And you wonder why we have some weird notions of Christmas. Songs like that would be one of them. (laughs) Right? We have some messed up views about God because of songs like that. Because God's not Santa Claus, even though that, that, it's that, those verses there kind of picture him as being like God, seeing you when you're awake and when you're asleep. Now, today we're talking about the VIP coming to town. 
The VIP coming to town is a big deal. China knows how to do this really well. I don't know if you read about um, even Trump's recent visit to China, but Trump had a lot of rhetoric about China before going. You know, he was, he was bad-mouthing China and talking all, you know, all kinds of dirt about them, and I'm sure there are some things that, uh, some problems they have. And again, I'm not getting into politics. But when he came back, his tune had changed a bit. He was a little more soft. He was a little more warm on China. Why? Because these people know how to throw a VIP reception. I mean, when he, I mean they, had, they literally trained huge thousands of children to be able to chant his name and call him, you know, President Trump as he was coming in, in, in English as he was coming in. They had banners. They had massive bands. He got secret private tours of the Forbidden City. I mean, they rolled out the red carpet, dialed up to 11. The red carpet. And, you know, of course, Trump likes that, believe it or not. I know it sounds weird, but he really appreciated that, um, as I'm sure we all would. Because it's a big deal when the VIP is coming to town. And that's what's happening here in our passage. The VIP is coming to town. It's called the triumphal entry. And this is a big deal. Now, let's, to understand it more fully, let's break it down in three ways. We're going to learn why it's such a big deal that the VIP, that is Jesus Christ, is coming to town, the town being Jerusalem. And we're going to see how he comes to town. That's what I want you all to watch closely today. Pay attention. How Jesus comes to town. How, he, how his entry is triumphal when he comes into Jerusalem. So we're going to see three things. We're going to see the careful Christ first. The careful Christ. We're going to see, secondly, the contrite Christ in this passage, in his coming to town. And then lastly, we're going to see the cleansing Christ. The cleansing Christ is the third thing we'll see in this passage. So first, first and foremost, as the VIP, the VIP of all VIPs is coming to town, he's careful. Jesus plans his entry really meticulously. He knows what he's doing. He knows what is to accomplish. He has a playbook, Zechariah chapter 9 is also called the triumphal entry of the king. Zechariah 9 describes how the king will enter. It's prophecy. It's prophesying about this very passage, and it's the playbook that Jesus is using. I know not all of you played sports, but you've certainly been to a sports game at some point in your life. Am I right? You've been to a sports game. And you know the kind of preparation that goes into game day. I know, thank goodness, UVA beat Carolina yesterday. We were so happy in our household. (laughs) But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of preparation that goes into games, isn't there? Right? You have tons of practice. I mean, these teams are practicing for months beforehand to get ready for the big day. Right? And then, on, then they set a time, they set a place, right? a stadium perhaps, and then all the tickets are sold, and, and then all the fans start pouring in. And as the fans are pouring in, right, they're chanting songs, they're rah-rah. You've got your little, you know, you got your little fake hand on your, on your finger. There's banners people are, there's posters people are holding up. The chants begin. There's a band that starts to play that leads everyone in the chants. I mean, it's a big deal. It's game day. It's game day. There's a lot of preparation that goes into game day. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is doing some prep, some game day prep. He's like, all right, disciples, I want you to go and I want you to get a donkey from the town of Bethphage and Bethany. And this is really important that we understand why not only he got a donkey, but where he got it from. Bethphage and Bethany are the places where Jesus did some of his most amazing miracles. This, without a doubt, this is his fan base. He knows what he's doing. This is not random. 
right? So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were from the town right, right in there, that area called right near Bethphage, where he was calling people to come from. And does anybody remember what happened to Lazarus, one of uh, the people that he was closest with? Does anyone know? Remember what happened with Lazarus? He died, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Okay, so probably Jesus has got some fans in this area. And, and behold, that's exactly what happens. Right? The disciples grab the donkeys because they bring them to him because he's got to ride in on something. Right? So they grab the donkeys, bring them to him, and he's riding into the town. And, then, and because there was probably murmurings, right? the disciples are feeling something going on. This is the first time in the book of Matthew that Jesus is publicly letting people call him the son of David. This is the first time before it was hidden, right? Before Jesus would say, shh, someone confess, yes, you're the Christ. You're, 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 you're the son of David. You're the son of God. And he'd be like, shh, don't tell anybody. But now he's like, yes, the, the time has come. The final week is here. It's game day. Yes, I am he. He takes these titles on himself. And then the people come out. They can sense that something's building too. Right, The donkey is being brought in, and this crowd gathers along the path into Jerusalem. And they've got their chance. Hosanna! Do you know what that means? Hosanna means he saves, basically. God saves. Hosanna! In the high, glory to God in the highest. I mean, and there's, there's chance. They're waving these palm branches all over the place. Some people call it Palm Sunday. But I mean, essentially, it's like game day. Right? People are chanting, waving these palm branches. They're throwing their cloaks down in front of him. They're throwing the palm down branches down in front of him, and there's this incredible scene. And the Bible even says, as he was entering the city, it says here it was stirred up in the ESV translation, but I prefer the NIV, I'll be honest. It says, the town was shaken. This is a big deal. The VIPs of all VIPs is entering the city. He is coming as the king. He's coming as the king. And this has always been Jesus' way of of bringing himself into a town and, most importantly, into people's lives. This is Jesus' M.O., right? He comes to challenge. He's not kidding around with these Pharisees. He's, people are saying, glory to God in the highest, and they're calling him God, and he's taking this name upon himself, and he's saying to the people of Israel, he's saying, you've got to decide right now, who do you think I am? Because I'm either it. I'm the VIP. I'm the king. The one you're going to bow to. I am, I am God incarnate. Or reject me and kill me. Or reject me and kill me. Jesus, when he enters into, a, into the city, when he enters into a life, when he enters to us, when he brings his challenge, it's rarely, hey, hey, I want to, do, I want to be like a little help in your life. Like I want to be a little icing on the cake. Like, I want to, I want to, like, help you, like, achieve your goals, and I'm Jesus. That is very much not how Jesus enters into this city and into our lives. Jesus is like, recognize me for who I am, and bow, and submit, and serve, or reject and kill me. In Revelation, it talks about the fact that uh, God says, the church has become lukewarm, and I spit you out of my mouth. There's a sense in which food isn't good lukewarm. It's good hot or it's good cold. It's not good lukewarm. right? And this is the same thing here. Jesus is not looking for a lukewarm reception. He's not looking for a lukewarm uh, response to him. He's saying, I'm it or I'm not it. 
It's time to decide. I'm entering the city as the son of David, the king of the universe. Now is the time to decide who I am for your city and for your life, for your individual life. It's powerful, y'all. And I know it's not very popular. This message, I get it. I'll be the first to admit it. This is not a popular message to most people. They want to think of Jesus as, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, he's a good teacher, spiritual guru. He's going to kind of show you an extra path. But that just isn't the option that Jesus leaves in the Bible. He's like, I am the king. I'm the king or I'm not. Or kill me. I'm the king or kill me. It's an important message and it's important for us to understand what it means for our own lives. Now, you know, one of, the, one of the ways that we find this idea of Jesus saying, I'm the king or I'm nothing, is when he asks people to follow him in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We studied that several months back. And I want to talk for just a minute, just to give us an application of this first point, what it means for us. Jesus is the king, and the king comes to not just, the king comes not just to Jerusalem, not just to a city. The king comes to every single one of us. The king comes, and he says, who am I? Who am I to you? Am I the one in control? Or are you the one in control? It's an important question. For instance, an application. Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 about worry. He says, Why do you worry? <laughs> Why do you worry <laughs> about your life? And if you're like me, you brought worry into this room here this morning. Absolutely. There's a lot of things I'm worried about. Worried about the future. It's 2018. Uh oh. Worried about, you know, how things are going to pa- play out, how things are going to pan out in family, work, etc. And Jesus is like, look at the flowers of the fields. I spin them and I color them exactly how I want them. Because why? I'm in control. I created them. And the same is true for you. If you let me actually have control, if you, if you said, yeah, Lord, oh, um, this is your thing. This is your plan. This is your, I'm yours. Um, I trust you, whatever happens. And there's actually some peace there. That's what Jesus talks about. He's like, there's, there's actually like legit peace there in saying, God, you got this. You got me. And I trust where you're taking me. Though the path may be hard, I will follow. That's, that's what Jesus, that's the kind of challenge Jesus brings when he comes to the city and when he comes to us. But he's not just the challenging Christ or the careful Christ who plans out exactly how he's going to approach the city. He's also the contrite Christ. And this is what drives the disciples crazy because he asks for them to get a donkey for him to ride into the town. Right? If he was actually the conquering king who was coming in to do his business on Rome and kick these ugly guys out who are running the show and oppressing the Jews, he would not be coming in on a donkey. A donkey is by no means a war horse. A donkey is a servant's ride. You know, this is like, this is like a pinto, uh, or worse. It's, 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 it's the kind of ride that you'd be embarrassed about. And I guarantee the disciples were probably trying to stop him from riding this thing. They were like, no, sorry, Bob. You did not want to ride on a donkey. You're going to get crushed. You're going to get crushed. If you ride a donkey into battle, Jesus, you're going to die. You're going to get crushed. It's probably better if you just walk than ride on this, this, this like, 
weird-looking little donkey you're riding into town on. This is bizarre. It's like showing up to a football game wearing a tutu. What's going to happen? You're going to get crushed. And that's what the disciples see here. They're so confused by it. The people are confused by it. Why is the king riding on a donkey? Because he's the contrite Christ. And Jesus is trying to teach them. He's been trying to teach them over and over throughout the book of Matthew. Throughout this whole story, he's been trying to teach them. But he's trying to teach them once again, it's not about visible power. It's about hidden power. It's not about visible power. It's about hidden power. The Jews still don't get this. This is why the Jews rejected him as he comes into Jerusalem. They don't get it. They want visible power. They want Jesus riding in on a stallion with armor on and a sword in his hand and he's ready to take down the bad guys and they're going to follow him. And they're going to take down the bad guys too. Strength and power. They want visible conquering because they want the power for themselves. The Jews want the power for them. And that's, that's their understanding of what the Messiah is. And he says, that's not the enemy I came to bring down, says Jesus. The enemy I came to bring down is so much bigger and so much more powerful and so much more hidden than what you're thinking. So much more hidden than what you're thinking. You know, one of my favorite, this is silly, I admit it, but one of my favorite sort of uh, glimpses into the hidden nature of sin was actually written by the Wachowski brothers in this movie they created called The Matrix. And admittedly, The Matrix is all about some weird uh, kind of voodoo philosophy, but I think they get some things right in there. And this is one of them. It's Morpheus sitting with Neo. And they're in this dark room. It's stormy outside because everything's stormy in this movie. Everything's dark in this movie. And, they're, and it's, finally it's time for Neo to find out about the truth. The truth. And so he's offered two pills. The red pill and the blue pill. And Morpheus, that is sort of the, Morpheus is sort of the God figure in this. He says, I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. Neo says, you could say that. Morpheus says, I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he's expecting to wake up. Ironically, that is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neo? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea. I'm not in control of my life. I can't do Keanu Reeves. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Morpheus says, I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Like a splinter in your mind. Driving you mad. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about, Neo? The Matrix, Neo says. Do you know what it is, says Morpheus. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room can see it when you look out the window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work or when you go to church or when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth, says Neo? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born inside a prison that you cannot smell, taste, or touch. A prison for your mind. Now, okay, It's a stretch to say it's a one-for-one comparison to what Jesus is teaching. But it's similar. It's similar to what Jesus was teaching the Jews at the time and what he's teaching us even today. This idea that it's hidden. The power that I have come to defeat is hidden, and that's why I'm on a donkey. Because I've got to beat it by dying. 
That's the message. You know, I remember I had a conversation with this young person at Mudhouse Coffee. I was out on the front porch, and I found out that they were studying and writing their dissertation for their anthropology degree. And I was like, that's interesting. You study people. I, lo- I like people. <laughs> Let's talk about people. And so we got into a conversation about people, and you know, I was like, you've studied the history of people, why people act the way they do throughout history. And I said, you know, what, is, what do you think is wrong with the world? Just kind of get the conversation going to the next level. And the person was like, didn't, now here's what's interesting. The person didn't hesitate in the sense of, they didn't question me and go, well, wait, something's wrong with the world? I mean, I think most people are going to just automatically recognize, yeah, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. And so uh, the person said to me, well, power. People with too much power. Corporations with too much power. Big business. Big tech companies. Big powerful men. I mean, probably something like the, you know, like the Me Too campaign. You know, these guys that get way too much power right? That's the problem. And then I said, this is the, my next question was, what about people without power? I asked, are they fine? And the person thought for a minute and we're like, yeah, people are basically good. And y'all, this is what the Jews were thinking at the time that Jesus was rolling into town. They were thinking about power and they were thinking about the fact that it's the bad people with all the power that, that, that's the real problem. And Jesus is like, no, nope. Look at my donkey. That's not the real problem. What is the real problem? It's, it's hidden. It's the hidden problem. You know, it's the evil power that is behind all the evil power. You catch that? It's the evil power that is behind all the evil power. The visible power that we get so frustrated with. And then I think rightfully we're seeing um, brought down in some ways even recently. And so Jesus is like, this hidden power is really f- important for you to understand. And especially as we come in... I think important for us to understand as we come into the new year where we're going to be tempted to think, you can do this. You can do this. I can do this. We got this. New Year's resolutions. Yeah. We're going to change because we got visible power, right, to change the world. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're so weak. (laughs) You can't do it on your own. I'm riding the donkey because I am going to get crushed and I'm going to get crushed for you because you can't do it. I can. And I can give it to you. See, here's the thing. If we, if we decide that we want visible power for ourselves, if we decide that Jesus is a visible power cookie for us to eat and get power for ourselves to go do powerful things, one of two things happens, right? If it's all about visible power, one of two things happens. We either become really arrogant or we despair. Those are the options. Y'all, I can't even tell you how many people, and myself is included in this, how many people are walking around in this world of ours, you encounter them at work, you encounter them in your own family, who are either super arrogant or in despair. Because they're living through visible power, and they even think God is interested in visible power. What do I mean? Okay, let's say you make a New Year's resolution, and let's say you keep it. I mean, the odds of that are super low. Like, you're like, 2% of you are going to keep your New Year's resolutions. Yeah, right. But the odds are, if you haven't dealt, hang on, if you haven't dealt with the hidden power that Jesus is dealing with, this, this sin power thing, this heart power thing he talks about all over the book of Matthew, if you haven't dealt with that, you're going to become incredibly arrogant. Because then it's all about you. I did it. Woo! I am amazing. And I am now going to rule over you. Y'all, this, this is why people get so confused when they're like, oh, Matt Lauer? 
Oh, he's such a nice guy. Oh, I don't understand. How is he, you know, whoa, he was, he was, he had hidden things going on in his heart that would cause him to do things that were awful. Oh, oh, so there's an evil power behind the evil power. Oh, okay. Now maybe I understand a little bit better about what's happening here. Arrogance, arrogance. That's the lot. Or if you're like the rest of us, 98%, this guy right here. If you're like the rest of us, 98%, you set your news resolution, I'm going to do it. And then you fail. Depression, despair. That's where a lot of people live. I've lived there plenty of times. Depression, despair. I can't, I'm nothing. I can't do it. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. But the gospel comes in. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey and he gets behind it all. He gets to the hidden thing called sin. And you find that when you accept Jesus and what he's done and the power that he brings through his death, through weakness, what you begin to find is humility and boldness. Y'all, I'm telling you, this is like massive. There's, There's a huge difference between the arrogance and despair that most of us and most of the world lives in and the humble boldness that Jesus Christ brings to people through his gospel. Because it's saying that, because the gospel says this, you have failed, you are failing, and you will fail. And yet you get the win! You get the win! That's incredibly humbling, and that's incredibly encouraging, and that's where confidence, and that's where humility, actual humility, come from. Not some fake like, oh, yeah, I'm not that good. Well, I'm, not, I'm really not that impressive. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I am pretty good, but, okay, I mean, bleh. We all know what real humility smells like, don't we? And we all know what, oh, I didn't try that hard. I mean, oh, I didn't work that long on that. You know, please, please. Arrogance, despair, humility, and boldness. Those are the options Jesus offers. That's, what the, that's the offer of the contrite Christ. And let's end with, I've got to make this one quick. Let's end with the cleansing Christ. The cleansing Christ. So we first, we've touched on so far, the careful Christ who comes to challenge. The careful Christ who comes to challenge. He challenges every single one of us. Who am I? Am I the king? Or are you going to kill me and walk away? Then, then Jesus, the contrite Jesus, comes to show us that the real problem is hidden power, not visible power. The real problem is hidden power, not visible power. Lastly, Jesus comes as the cleansing Christ. He comes in. You, we, we just read it a second ago. Jesus comes in, and his first thing he does that the Bible, that Matthew records, is he goes immediately to the temple. That is the place where the Jews worshipped God, and he starts to just cause a ruckus. He starts just cranking tables. I mean, you, he's probably, they're probably a little bit like these tables in here with these wheels. And he's just upending them and, you know, money's flying all over the place. And he's taking chairs like this and he's just, you know, kicking them. Oh, I don't know what he's doing with them. Probably knocking them down with his hands. But nonetheless, it is chaos. It's tumult. And people are freaking out. What is going on? What is Jesus doing? And he's saying, this, this temple This is a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. What does he mean, and what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. It means that God is not transactional. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is trying to tell those that are in the temple. 
And he's trying to tell people in general, God is not transactional. God is not someone we bargain with. When Jesus comes in and tears up the temple, the idea is that God must not be used. He's not a rabbit's foot. He's not a magic eight ball. Because that was happening in the temple. God, God, was a, God was being used. He was a means to an end rather than an end in himself. And this is important for us. There's, there's deep application for us from this. Because the New Testament, especially Paul, the apostle, the writer of most of the New Testament, he said, what is the new temple of God? What's the new temple of God in the New Testament after Jesus has been resurrected? Anybody know? We are. We are. The Holy Spirit resides within us, and we are called the temple of God, where he resides. And Jesus, y'all, he'll clean house. He'll clean house. And what do I mean by that? We all do the same thing at times. We all play the transactional game with God, don't we, sometimes? You know, Jesus is like, I'm going to restore the true intent of the temple, and he'll do it in an individual. He'll do it in his own house. He'll do it in the church. He does it in the church, but he'll do it in individual lives, too. Because that's where he resides also. And he will restore the true intent of the temple. And I mean by that, that a place where God has communion with people. A house of prayer. Place, and not a place where God is used to get money, sex, and power. Because that's what, that's what the heart without God on the throne longs for. Things like that. Money, sex, and power. Right? It's why someone can say, and you may have said this. I'm, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not accusing any, anybody in here, but... It's why someone can say, I believe in God, and yet still really badly need the tables of their heart upended and money to be strewn, strewn everywhere. Because you can say, I believe in God, and still totally be living a transactional life with him. Here's what I mean by that. A transactional life with God. God, can you get me money, sex, and power? Can I set up tables of exchange in my life where I give you some coins, maybe some time, maybe some church attendance, my, I'll, I'll, my cussing, I'll make it more mild. Uh, you know, maybe some pocket change to the poor. Um, and then you'll give me the things I really crave. The new job, the new vacation, the new woman or man, the new house, the new health, the new pleasure. Can we just make a deal? I'll give you some things and you give me some things. Can we just work this out, God? And I'm telling y'all, this is the source of so much unhappiness in the world. Christian and non-Christian alike. It's the source of so much unhappiness because God will not make these deals and he will disappoint if you're living the transactional way with God. It's why so many people get so upset, so mad at him. God, you let me down. This was not supposed to happen in my life. I'm so mad at you. This was not how I had it planned out. We made a deal, didn't we? Didn't we make a deal, God? I'll be kind of good. I'll get away with some stuff, I know, but I'll try in some areas. And then you come through for me, right? I prayed about this. (laughs) I have some needs, I have some wants, come on. And God's like, God's like, this Jesus coming to the temple, he's like, no, 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 no. It's a house of prayer. I am your pleasure. I am the good that your heart is longing for in all these other things, money, sex, and power. You think you can, you're going to find it. You think, St. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you alone, Lord. You're going to be restless. If it's money, sex, and power, and those are the things that you really want, and your God is a transaction to get those things, it's going to lead to an incredible amount of unhappiness. I've been there. I've been unhappy because of some of those things. But, but here's, the, here's the final point. 
we conclude with this. Jesus doesn't turn over the tables in our hearts because he's simply mad at us. Hear this. Hear this. Jesus doesn't turn over the tables in our heart because he's simply mad at us. He's not mad at you. He's fighting for you. Jesus is coming for you. What do I mean? I read a story this week about this cult in India. It's called like the heavenly fatherly place of heavenly rest or some, some that's the translation. It's this cult in India and they, the government just recently in the last couple weeks freed 45 uh, minors. So girls who were less than the age of 18, I'm guessing. I don't know what they consider minors in India. But they freed them from this compound where there's barbed wire, where the women are living in, in, just, in, in cells. They're in these like concrete cells. There's no food. It's awful. It's like basically like an, worse than an animal will live. And here's what's crazy. 145 of women who are in there who are above the age of minors stayed. They stayed. And they found all kinds of drugs in there, syringes. Um, and it's this, it's this awful cult. And I was thinking about it this week, and I'm like, this, this, this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, if, you're, if your life is transactional with God, it's slavery. You're in slavery to money, sex, and power. Just like those girls that are trapped in India in this. And I thought about it myself. I was like, what would I do if I found out my daughter was in there? I'd cause, I'd cause hell. I'd come in there and I would wreck that place. And I would wreck every person in there that had done anything to hurt my girl. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not turning other tables because he's mad at you. He wants you. He wants you. He's coming to wreck things to get you. Jesus turns over the tables in our life to have communion with us. And then what he does is he spreads a table. And he says, this is what your heart is longing for. This is it. You've tried to find it in so many other things. But I am it. I am what your heart longs for. And I'm working to rescue you. I'm going to come and I am going to find you and I am going to love you. And y'all, y'all, just like those girls in that cult in India, they, they stayed. A lot of them stayed because they thought this is, this, is, this is all there is. This is all there is, is these drugs and this life. But it's not true. It's not true. And we work hard to unbrainwash people, wouldn't we? We'd fight for them. Final two applications. Two applications as we close. One, if God is fighting this hard for your own heart, whose heart are you fighting for? Are you fighting for anybody's heart? Anybody? Family, friend, coworker? Are you going after anyone? Because he calls us to take up arms with him as he charges these jail cells of slavery that people are living in. Are you fighting for anyone's heart? Just one person. Just think of one person that you could fight for their heart. And then lastly, what is one table coming into 2018 that you need to let him get his hands on? What's a table in your heart that you, you've got a death grip on and that you haven't been able, you, haven't, you will not let him touch it, turn it over? It may be time. Wh- which table do you, have, do you need to let go of and let God have his way and be the king who enters not just the city, but who enters the heart? Let's pray. 
Lord God, what an amazing passage. Woo! Um, Jesus, come. Come and do your work. Rescue us, Lord. We need to be rescued by your love. And Lord, I pray that you would return us to that joy and that, that confident humility that you promised, Lord. Oh, we long for it, Lord. We, I long for it, Jesus. I live in arrogance and I live in despair so much of the time. Rescue me, Lord. Rescue us. That we, the gospel would become the center of our lives. That Jesus, that you would be our treasure this year, 2018. Lord, humble us. Lord, help us to submit. We don't want to. I don't want to submit. None of us do. But Jesus, we know that you can. You can break us. And you can bring us to the joy that we've always longed for. Lord, thank you for this table that we're approaching right now. This table that is a visible message of the invisible reality that is taking place inside of us. That you have come to rescue us. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with your joy and with yourself. Even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like I was saying earlier, this table is... This is Jesus' visible picture, right? We talked about the hidden, the hidden thing, the hidden sin in our life. But this is Jesus' visible picture of what He's done and what He is doing for us. He was broken for us. And that's, that's why we, we celebrate this meal uh, on a consistent basis. Because when He was in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples, He said, this is My body. And you have to understand what's happening here. Jesus said, this is My body and it's, it's broken for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to ride in on a donkey and I'm going to get crushed for you. Eat now in remembrance of me. And we would ask, uh, we would ask that if you have not made Jesus your king, it's an easy way. We talked about that earlier in the sermon. If Jesus has not become the king of your life, we would ask that you would spend some time and reflect and pray and, conf- and, and come to him today. Ask him, Lord, what are you doing in my life? How do you want me to respond to you? But if you have made him your king or are trying to make him your king, this table's for you and it is meant to nourish and to fill and to revive. May it be that for you even today. Amen. Oh yeah, sorry. Okay. This is your job, man, not mine. <laughs>